0: Welcome to The Latest on the Law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Hi, good afternoon. Um, Thank you for joining this timely brown bag discussion uh, with the tax exempt organization section. I'm Ellen Farwell. I'm a member of the steering committee and a faculty member at Roger Williams University School of Law. Um, But today we're excited to have this conversation with Teresa Santalucia about um, sort of the thing that's going to be on nonprofit minds over the coming election year um, relating to their advocacy and involvement in politics. Um, Teresa's practice focuses on affordable housing and community development activities. And she regularly counsels organizations on nonprofit compliance issues at both the state and federal level. Um, And uh, like was already said, if you have a question during the session, please write it in the Q&A and we'll also try to save some time at the end. We may become a little less formal um, since we're such a small group, but I'll let Teresa take it from here.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ellen. Uh, so again, my name is Teresa Santa Lucia. I am at Klein Hornig. Um, I really became interested in this issue in about in the elections for, uh, leading up to 2016. Um, I have a quite a few. Uh, my clients are uh, 501c3 tax exempt organizations, and they were coming to me with questions about their role in the election. Um, during the election year um, in terms of both advocacy, lobbying and participating in elections and just really not understanding the rules. And so um, I put together a slideshow and I really um, started to pay attention a little bit more about how the nonprofits that I was working with were engaged with their clients and with the community in terms of advocacy work and lobbying work. And there's just so much misinformation out there that um, I have done this presentation over and over again. And I have found that there's a lot of organizations that really wanna be doing more in this arena and just didn't have sort of the framework. So I'm gonna share my slides here. Um, and again, if anybody has any questions, feel free to put it in the chat. I can't see that, but Ellen can. And so she will be able to uh, let me know if there's any questions. I'm happy to take questions throughout the presentation. Um, let's, let's see if I can, move it. there we go. So again, the purpose of this particular presentation is a 101 level training regarding lobbying advocacy and political activity as it pertains specifically to 501 c three tax exempt organizations. Um, Obviously, the information is a presentation meant for educational purposes, not intended for legal advice. Um, This is a webinar format. So, again, I will have some time hopefully at the end. uh, But because we're a small group, feel free to ask questions as we go through. um, And I will have a copy of today's slides available. So, the outline is just sort of talk through when I say an MP. 501c3, what am I talking about and why is that relevant uh, to this particular topic, and then to go over advocacy, lobbying and political activity. So one of the reasons that you know a lot of times people understand that 501c3s have some special rules around lobbying and political activity, but they don't always know the genesis of it. Uh, so I like to go right back to the IRS code um, and remind people where this comes from. Uh, section. Uh, 501A of the Internal Revenue Code says the following organizations in subsection C shall be exempt from taxation. If you go down to subsection 501C3, this is the very you know uh, familiar language to many of us that corporations are organized and operated exclusively for, and then it's religious, scientific, testing, literary, educational purposes, et cetera. What people don't realize is that section continues. <clears throat> And it says you're exempt from taxation so long as no part of the net earnings, uh, which are to the benefit of any private shareholder or individual, no substantial part of the activities which is carrying on propaganda or otherwise attempting to influence legislation, and which does not participate in or intervene in um, any political campaign um, on behalf of uh, candidates for public office. So those are three distinct things. Those are the three distinct um uh, prohibitions for a 501c3 organization. And so when you break it down, there they are the no private benefit, the no substantial lobbying, and the no political campaign activities. So we're gonna talk about the no substantial lobbying and the no political campaign activities. Um, The most important slide, I think, of this entire presentation is this one (laughs) because it sort of lays out the ground rules. Um, Advocacy is an educational activity. It's basically educating people about an issue, about the work that you're doing. Advocacy is not limited in any way. Every organization, every 501 c 3 should be doing advocacy, should be getting out into the community in front of their legislators, in front of um, you know, policymakers, et cetera, letting them know what they're doing and what the issues are at hand. It's education. You can do as much ed- advocacy as you can possibly manage. Lobbying, so to go back to that side, it says no substantial lobbying. A lot of times people think, oh, no lobbying. No, that's not correct. You can lobby. It should say, yes, you can lobby, but so long as it's insubstantial. Um, so that's, that's the rule for lobbying is that it cannot be a substantial part of your activity. Your activity as a 501c3 tax-exempt organization should be in furtherance of your exempt purpose, whether that be charitable or education or literary or whatever it may be. But if you do an insubstantial amount of lobbying, that is okay. And we're going to talk about what insubstantial versus substantial is a little bit later. Three, engaging in political campaign activity is prohibited. Again, what we're gonna talk about is the nuances of that. So what is political campaign activity? Um, One of the things that I really emphasize in all of the presentations I do and with my own clients is that there is activity that happens within an election year, like the one that's coming up, that um, uh, feels kind of (laughs) election-y. that is okay for instance get out the vote helping your clients your residents you know the the community members that you work with the volunteers understand the political process and how to participate in the political process that is okay that is not political campaign activity it is not prohibited so advocacy yes you can do lobbying yes you can do so long as it's not a substantial amount and three political campaign campaign activity So we're gonna talk about is prohibited. So advocacy, um, this is again, like I said, providing information to clients, public members, decision makers, influencing public opinion on issues, um, encouraging people to vote. So this is where, um, you know, in an election year, what is some advocacy that you can be doing in an election year? Um, helping people understand the voting process, the voting rules, where their polling station is, giving them information in a non-biased, neutral manner. That is okay. That is considered education and thus advocacy. We're going to go into that a little bit more at the end of the slide. Lobbying, lobbying is attempting to influence legislation through directly contacting members of legislative bodies, encouraging the public to count uh, to contact members of the legislative bodies or advocating a position on a public referendum that is out in the um, being voted upon. So, it is that direct communication with legislative bodies, and that is at the local level, state level, and federal level. So, lobbying is when you are directly contacting or when you are encouraging people to directly contact legislative members. So, again, advocacy permitted as an educational activity. Lobbying, it cannot be a substantial activity of your organization. One of the things for lobbying that I think is really important is that what I'm talking about are the IRS rules for a tax-exempt organization with regards to lobbying. But I want to make sure that people understand there are other rules that that come along with lobbying. Um, So there are federal election commission has restrictions on campaigns accepting certain contributions. There are funding restrictions. So a lot of our 501c3s rely on funding from state or federal agencies. A lot of those uh, grants or funding mechanisms have prohibitions from using that, those funds on any kind of lobbying, whether it's substantial amounts or insubstantial amounts. And so there are often um requirements in your funding documents, grant agreements or other agreements that has uh, that speaks to how those funds can be used uh, with regards to lobbying. And that that's really important to to pay attention to. There are also sunshine laws uh, that are at the federal and state uh, level. And that's a whole system of reporting and registration of lobbyists so that people understand who's trying to influence legislators, again, at state and at federal level. So those are three different um, other mechanisms that are uh, kind of involved with lobbying. And if you are gonna engage in lobbying, you wanna make sure that you're taking a look at those as well. Um, What I'm talking about is the IRS rules for a 501c3 tax exempt entity. So again, lobbying is yes, you can lobby. It has to be an insubstantial amount or cannot be a substantial amount of your um, overall uh, revenue. So people say, well, how do I determine what is insubstantial? The insubstantial test is determined uh, amount of money and time spent on lobbying. Insubstantial is a small percentage Typically, practitioners that I work with consider 5% or below as insubstantial of the total annual expenditure. So your total annual expenditure in the year, um, if it's $100,000, it would be 5% of that. Anything below that would be considered an insubstantial amount of lobbying. But the IRS hasn't come out and given a clear definition of what substantial or insubstantial is. So this 5%, I've seen it go up to 10%. I've seen other practitioners say 3%. There's no actual bright line in the, you know that says what the actual test is. That, of course, leaves some organizations who are engaging in, in significant lobbying, um, uh, activities you know with a feeling of unease right and so the IRS has provided what's called a safe harbor and that says okay if you're a 501c3 tax-exempt organization and you're going to lobby and you want to have more security in terms of what are the boundaries and in, in which you have to work in you can file a 501h exp, um, form and you can um, adhere to the 501h expenditure test so they basically say like you you have to tell us that you're going to lobby and you're going to have to report to us that you're going to lobby, but we'll give you very clear guidelines as to how much you can use for lobbying. Um, I think I see that there's a chat, something in the chat. Is that for me, Ellen?
0: No, sorry. To interrupt you.
1: Okay. So the 501 age expenditure test, um, this is that clear guidance. This is the form 5768. This is what you would file if you say, look, we know we're going to do some lobbying. We want to have a really clear understanding of what we can go up to. Um, You basically can spend a percentage of your annual budget on lobbying. You have to report to the IRS when you file this that says how you've done that and what way, how much you've done that. The percentage actually varies depending on your annual budget. So very large organizations have one amount, very small organizations have a little. But basically for a smaller 501c3 tax exempt organization, you can you can spend up to 20% of your annual budget on lobbying. So again, you are saying to the IRS, "Hey, we're we're lobbying and you do now have the requirement to report on your lobbying, but it gives you that security and to be able to lobby up to 20% of your annual expenditure." Uh, So this is, there is a lobbying um, amount out there that says, you know, these are the amounts that you can uh, lobby um, the expenditures and the non-taxable amount of that. If you go over this, it is taxable, um, any of the uh, money that you are spending. Um, And if you have excess lobbying expenditures and they really do exceed what you have stated and what the IRS has said you can do in a safe harbor, there could be a potential revocation of your tax exempt status because it could tip you over into the substantial amount of lobbying. Right. So they have said you can lobby, but it can't be a substantial amount of your, your activities. And so, you know, it's really important that organizations that have 501c3. Organize um, and are planning to lobby, have a clear understanding. Are we gonna be under say that 5% threshold? Do If we are, if we potentially are, should we file the 501H election? And should we then report to the IRS? If we're gonna do that, we have to have a really clear policy and understanding of how we're spending our funds, how we're keeping it under the safe harbor uh, limits. So, again, the message, hopefully, in all of this is that tax-exempt organizations like 501c3s can lobby. That can be part of your overall strategy. It can be part of your daily activities. It can be provide some really meaningful ways to change policy and make impacts for the communities that you're serving. Um, but there are some things to keep in mind. Um, you want to make sure that you're using non-restricted funds, and again, you want to pay attention to specifically state and federal funds because those are the ones that usually have restrictions on how those funds can be used when it comes to lobbying. You want to track your employee time and expenses. You want to understand what are your expenses when you're lobbying. You know, if an organization is just tweeting once a year that says, "Hey, go on up out to the hill and tell your legislators to vote for." you know, bill, whatever, and that's it. That's the extent of your lobbying. I mean, that is a very small percentage of your time and expenses. But if you're organizing March on the Hill days, if you're getting buses, if you're making photographs of things, if you are having a sustained campaign, if you're p- paying an employee or a consultant to be doing a social media marketing campaign about a particular legislation, you are now in a category where you need to be tracking those costs and really understand what they are in relation to your overall budget. You want to use board members and other volunteers. Um, that is a low cost solution to doing lobbying, right? You're not. Um, it may may include you reaching out to somebody, but you know their time is not necessarily part of your overall budget. Um, you want to re- you want to re- review um, how you're reporting your lobbying. So if you do choose to um, make the 501 each election. Uh, You want to make sure that you're taking a look at how your preparer is categorizing your lobbying, whether they're doing it accurately, whether they're not just copying the year before. That's one of the biggest problems I see, actually, is somebody, an organization says, okay, we're going to file the 501H, we're going to do reporting, and then every year last year's information sort of just rolls over and it doesn't really get updated. got to remember that all of the reports, such as the Form 990 to the IRS and state um, reporting requirements, those are all public and people are looking at those. So you want to make sure that anything that you are putting out in the public about your lobbying efforts is up-to-date and accurate. And then you really want to educate your board, your staff, your volunteers about the difference between advocacy and lobbying and kind of explain to them, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. And perhaps even have a policy that sort of sets out the requirements that if anybody in your organization is going to lobby on behalf of the organization, what's the process to get that approved to understand what kind of expenses go along with that? So now we've moved out of advocacy and lobbying. And advocacy, you know, feel free to go ahead and do as much as you can. Uh, lobbying, you should um, uh, be thoughtful about it. Start to track it. Make sure that it's not a substantial part of your um, your overall purpose. Um, and uh, political campaign activity is, from the very beginning, it's a prohibited activity. Um, And so you want to be really clear about what that political campaign activity is. Um, My definition is any campaign intervention. So an activity that may hurt or help the chances of an election by any particular candidate, a group of candidates for office. So, again, it's not just opposition. It can be in support of a candidate as well. Um, and these include endorsements of candidates, contributions to candidates or to their PACs, public statements for or against a particular candidate, distributing materials on behalf of a particular candidate, um, even if it's third party materials. So, again, the idea is that a 501 should be impartial, should not be supporting or opposing any partic- partic- um, particular candidate. Um, if this is regardless of political party affiliation. And the test for whether an organization has participated in campaign intervention is a facts and circumstances test. So um, this is um, this is often referred to. This idea of prohibition of political campaign activity is the Johnson Amendment. Um, the Johnson Amendment was added to the Internal Revenue Code in I think 1954. Uh, when uh, then Senator Johnson was running for office and a 501c3 in Texas campaigned against him and when he won, he went to Congress and he added this prohibition that 501c3s could not participate in the political process uh, that they were being subsidized by you know the the government uh, by providing a, an economic um, benefit by not taxing them and thus they shouldn't be using their they should be focused on their mission and not on the political process. This really came to light in the 2016 election uh, by um, former President Trump. Um, he actually talked about the Johnson Amendment quite a bit, um, and he wanted to outlaw, you know, get rid of the, the Johnson Amendment. And he felt like this was um, a free speech um, issue is how he used to put it. And that he was when he went to the White House was going to. Um, was going to allow 501c3 organizations to participate in the political process. Um, one of the primary reasons was because many churches and religious organizations are exempt organizations. And they, um, uh, I think that uh, Trump really, uh, his base wanted to be able to speak in favor or oppose, you know, a candidate. And um, so that that's why his interest sort of peaked at this this prohibition. Um, For a few years, the IRS, when Trump was in office, really didn't know how uh, to handle this prohibition. Um, I think Trump put forth a presidential directive that they weren't to enforce it. That went back and forth in the courts a little while. Um, Trump actually didn't have the authority to, to do that, it turned out. And so the IRS has stated over and over again, it is still a prohibited activity. 501c3 tax exempt organizations are not allowed to participate in the political campaign activities where they are uh, opposing or um, uh, supporting a particular candidate. So it has been in the news quite a bit. If you ever hear Johnson Amendment or if you hear um, this this issue come up, it is something that does sort of cycle through when it's the election year. <laughs> There are tax consequences for political expenditures. Again, um, during the Trump administration, there was very little movement from the IRS on when there was an organization that um, participated in the political election. Um, and I will say it's been, I have found it that it is uh, really been uh, quite um, uh, uneven in the IRS's review of this and um, uh, providing any kind of, um kind of reasonable or consistent guidance on when they're going to actually come after an organization from participating in the political system. Um, so, you know, I try to advise my clients of the under, you know, of the of the rule. I try to make sure that they understand that the law still stands, that 501c3s are not allowed to participate in the political um, process when they are uh, either supporting or endorsing um, or opposing a political candidate. Um, But I will say, just kind of as an aside, I have found the IRS has been really um, pretty uh, arbitrary in its um, supervision of this provision. So um, what can 501c3s do in an election year? I think that's an important thing uh, to pay attention to. Um, Again, a lot of times people think that anything done in an election year is a political activity, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, So when you think about an election year, like the one we have coming up, Mm. what are things that 501c3s are able to do and what are some of the things that they really should not be engaged in? Um, The things that fall under advocacy are things like registering people to vote, distributing nonpartisan materials on candidates or ballot measures, um, helping voters understand the election process, Um, For instance, in the last election, there was a lot of confusion about what kind of identification people needed to have to go to vote, you know, so helping people understand what the identification was necessary in their state. Um, encouraging people to vote. That is not a partisan activity. You know, that is helping people and encouraging them to participate in the political system that we have. Uh, providing information to uh, volunteers or clients or board members or your constituents about the candidates and about some of the issues um, that they've been involved in. Um, sponsoring events that help educate people and provide people with more information so that they can make informed decisions. Um, that can be all advocacy, maybe teetering into lobbying, but most of it is in advocacy. Um, Things that you really can't do in an election year that fall under that political activity Uh, that would be endorsing a candidate, supporting a candidate with your resources, whether those are monetary resources or, you know, you say, okay, all staff are going to go and work on a campaign, you know, campaign activity. You can't do that. You can't show a preference. For instance, you can't rate candidates for people based on their issues Um, and you can't campaign against a, a, a candidate either. Um, I found one case that I thought was really interesting. It was an organization that supported Latino women. And so what they were doing was they were actually, um, regardless of party, they didn't care where the person was on their political spectrum. They were just really, they cared about furthering um, Latino women and uh, voice in the political system. So they actually were supporting um, and endorsing Latino women that were running for office Irregardless of their party um, in that particular state. And the IRS actually called them on it and said, nope, you that is political activity. You are supporting political candidates. And they said, Well, we're not, we're not supporting a political party. And they said, That's not the point. You cannot support political candidates. You cannot endorse political candidates as a 501c3. So I just think that's a kind of an interesting example of where. An organization thought like we're really supporting an issue, but the IRS said, no, no, you're actually supporting an actual individual candidate by putting their name out and encouraging people to vote for them. So here again, just to go in a little bit more detail about the types of activities that you can do in a political um, uh, election year like we have coming up, um, the get out the vote. Um, again, this is nonpartisan information about the process rather than support or opposition for a candidate. Um, registering and educating your members, your staff, your board, your volunteers. I mean, I think that's something that every 501c3 should do at a board meeting. Say, OK, is every board member here registered? Uh, does everybody, you know, all of our volunteers send out an email? Are you registered? If you're not registered, how can we help you get registered and participate in the process? Really making sure and engaging with people that the election matters, that getting out and and, um, and participating in the election can have a real impact um, in your community. Um, and again, this isn't just on the national level. This can be at a state level or even in your community, uh, your smaller municipalities or towns. Um, You can set up tables or work in the community to register voters, and you can also have registration forms at your office or events or meetings. So if you want to have, hey, you're now signed up to vote, here's some registration forms, you can have that available. All of this is considered advocacy. It is not considered political activity. Um, This is language that I give to folks. I think is a good if you're having a voter registration or education initiative. You can add this language to flyers, to a table, to, you know, if you're, you can say it out loud at events. That basically, these voter registration services are available without regard to the voter's political preferences. Information and other assistance regarding registering or voting, including transportation and other services offered, shall. Shall not be withheld or refused on the basis of support for or opposition to particular candidates or a particular party. So this is sort of like your disclosure language. This is your language that kind of says, "Hey, we're doing this on a nonpartisan way. We just want you to get out there and participate. You know, in the voting process. It's not subject to your particular political views." Um, educating candidates. Again, this is one that I think 501c3s really need to do. Um, you know, if you have a particular issue, your 501c3, your client has an issue, um, they should be engaging with the candidates. They should be out there and giving them information about that particular issue. So I work a great deal in the, in the area of affordable housing, you know, um, It's a complex issue. It's got a lot of different um, uh, viewpoints. Um, But I'm always encouraging my clients to get out to the candidates and give them information about their communities, about the the struggles that they're facing, about the programs that they're utilizing, about fixes to those programs. Um, Really try to get out there and educate all of the candidates, not just some candidates, not the candidates you think are going to care, but all of the candidates. Make sure you give that information to everybody. Invite them to your... um, to the 501c3s uh, office or to the work that they're doing, invite all of those candidates and educate them about the work that's happening on the ground. I think that's really, really important, um, and I think that that's something that 501c3s should be doing in an election year. Oops, went the wrong way. Um, conducting candidate forums. Um, if you are representing a 501c3 and they say, "Look, we want to, we want our community to really get a better understanding." of the issues and of the candidates, or, you know, we really want to help the candidates connect connect to the work that we're doing, sponsoring a candidate forum is a great way to do that. It is an opportunity for any of the candidates that are running to come and have one night where they are um, able to ask questions, answer questions, participate, um, the, the, the important part of that though is to make sure that when you do it you are doing it in a non-partisan way right you're you are providing the same opportunities to all the candidates who are participating you invite all of the candidates who are running for that particular race you make sure that the rules of the forum are fair to all participants um and you consider the questions that are going to be asked to those participants so that you can't be asking questions all on just one topic but you have to be able to give people an opportunity to um to you know, kind of introduce themselves to the to the committee, I mean to the community. Um, I was thinking of uh, one of the things that I have read where one five hundred one c three had a. Um, a candidate forum and the candidate that they liked, they had like really nice lighting on and one candidate that they didn't like, it was kind of like off to the side in the shade, right? Like that's a clear example of how you're not treating the candidates fairly. A more nuanced thing is where you have a set of questions and those questions really are targeted, you know, and there are questions that really kind of lob, you know, easy answers from one candidate and really kind of hone in on another candidate's policy that you don't agree with. And that's all that you talk about right you don't get sort of an opportunity for people to showcase their platform um and so i think you have to be careful in that respect i have had situations where clients of mine have called me and said we did a candidate forum we invited everybody we sent them the questions ahead of time we asked, asked for their input and only one candidate responded you know and it just happens to be the candidate that's like more aligned with our mission do I have to cancel the candidate forum? And I said, absolutely not. You know, if the candidates choose not to participate, if they choose not to come, that doesn't mean that you can't move forward. You've done your job. You have, you know, selected a a venue that was neutral. You know, you asked neutral questions. You gave everybody the same amount of time um, making a decision about whether they wanted to come. If only one person wants to come, that one person wants to come, you can still hold your event. um another is voter guides um so uh this is a great way to get information about candidates out to folks um they uh you can do candidate guides candidate questionnaires uh you can even do it on ballot measures um the thing about this is again you have to be um, impartial, you have to be neutral, nonpartisan. Um, and when you're doing your voter guides, you have to make sure that you're doing them in a way that is not sort of setting up one person and, you know, minimizing another. Um, and th- there was a really interesting one done in Massachusetts that the Secretary of State's office highlighted as um, not appropriate where a five oh one c three entity. Did a candidate questionnaire, candidate guide. It had everybody listed. It had their voting record. It had, you know, a statement from their campaign office. It had everything was the same. It looked very, you know, very good, very professional, nonpartisan. The only thing about it was that the candidates that this 501c3 sort of supported were in, um, there was a slight green behind them. And the candidates that they didn't like had a slight red behind them. And the candidates that were in the middle had yellow behind them. Right. And so, there was a clear sort of subliminal message of like these are the green go candidates and these are the candidates that we don't like and that was sort of an example of how um you know the details matter and of course they did that on purpose but you know they that was something that they should not have engaged in and if you're really going to do a voter guide you really have to do it fair and square with sort of no um uh uh, overt or um, subliminal messaging behind it So these are some of the rules for those like I said, you know, you want to make sure that you have all of the same um, information for all of the different candidates. So much of election is happening online, right? There social media has taken the is the biggest platform for um for candidates during an election year. Um, it's really important for 501c3. These are the these is, this is the area that I get the most questions from clients in terms of what they can and cannot do, or if they have an issue, is how they are engaging with their uh, constituents or their clients during an election year on social media. Um, a 501c3 cannot publicize or distribute statements in supporting or opposing candidates, you know, for public office. We just know that, and that includes on all these various social media platforms. Um, anytime that you send out a tweet or you post an Instagram, you know, you have to be thoughtful about is this nonpartisan, is this about educating, you know, our audience or is this about swaying them to oppose or to support a particular candidate? You have to be really thoughtful. The other thing, and I had this last night, I was at a board meeting, and this actually came up because um if you link to another organization's website, you are responsible for the materials that that link sends uh, somebody to. So for instance, um, in this case that came up last night, that um, my client had a link to another 501c3. And at the time, it was about some program that they were both working on. So that link went to the other 501c3's website. Um, Last night, we looked at it at the board meeting, we were kind of talking about it. And in fact, they were engaging in some lobbying and political activity, the other And when you hit that link, it went to that page now. And that had changed since they had put up the link. Um, The organization that puts up the link is responsible for making sure that, you know, if they send somebody to another page that they're not sending them to, some information that is opposing or supporting a political candidate. And so, you know, that's something that you have to pay attention to and you should have a policy on it. your clients, should have a policy on. It and that um, if you are going to uh, link to any kind of candidate related material or any kind of website, you want to make sure that you're doing an audit on a regular basis to make sure that it is in fact going to sort of a nonpartisan educational material and not a candidate specific um. Page. this happens like if for instance you another um, one that I saw was where my client linked to a legislator's policy paper uh, that was on the issue that they you know they, they shared it was a policy paper it was a non-election year they had linked to this uh, it gave a lot of good facts and information about the particular issue an election year came up and that candidate changed their website so that that page of theirs went to their their uh, reelect campaign. And so now when you click the link, it went directly to a reelect uh, website. So you got to you got to maintain that. You got to watch that. Um, the other thing that I see, especially for really small 501 C3s, is that they don't really have a social media policy. And so, you know, a volunteer says, oh, I'll manage your Instagram account. And then Bruce at Betty says, great. And so that person, you know, sends out pictures or sends out pictures. Um, uh, posts on Instagram and then an election year rolls around and maybe they have really strong feelings about the election and they send out, a, um, they send out sort of an election related post um, or they send out themselves at an election event Um, Those are the kinds of things that you really have to watch. The people who have access to the social media that's on behalf of the 501c3 have to have a really good understanding of the differences between their personal engagements and their role for the 501c3 and what they can post for the 501c3. So this is some tips to prevent problems, especially in an election year. Um, you wanna create a written policy prohibiting specific political activities and educate board officers, staff, volunteers about that policy, right? Have It doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to, to say like, these are our rules. These are things you gotta pay attention to. You know, please, you know, you can do anything you want in a personal capacity, but if you're acting on behalf of this organization, here are the rules. Um, You need to understand and comply with all of your funding requirements. Again, it's really important during, especially during an election year. But at any time, you want to make sure that you've read your grant agreements, your funding requirements, and see if there's anything in there that has any prohibitions on some of the work that you're doing. So for instance, I know that there are some federal funding that prevents you from engaging in get out the vote. Even though that's not a political activity, they don't want their funds going to <clears throat> get out the vote activities. So again, it's really good to make sure that you're looking at your funding requirements and prohibitions. You want to establish internal controls to prevent any political expenditures and ensure compliance with your policy, you know, make sure that if people are um, you know, lobbying or if they are participating um you know, out in the community that you you know what the expenses are, you know how much time is being spent on those things. So you're kind of keeping an understanding of how your organization is engaging in these particular issues. Um, your issue advocacy should be reviewed, especially in an election year. You need to be careful of your language, right? So you can be educating people, you can be providing people with resources, but again, you want to make sure that it is not looked at as an opposition or, or a um, 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 you know, a support of any particular candidate during an election year. Uh, Having some discussions with staff and just really making sure that if they're politically active, they're doing it outside of um, their work hours. That's an increasingly difficult conversation because work hours, you know, that used to be nine to five really are not nine to five anymore. And so what's work hours and what's not? It's particularly more difficult for, you know, people um, who, like my clients who are executive directors, you know, they're on all the time. People know them as the executive director of the 501c3. And so when are they acting as in their personal capacity versus when are they acting on behalf of the organization? So, you know, just starting to have some of those discussions about um, personal versus um, acting on behalf of the organization. Keeping a really good eye on your social media, monitoring it, making sure that you understand who has the passwords, who has control of your social media. That's an incredibly important thing for any time, honestly, but particularly in an election year. Um, You know, making sure that the leaders of the tax exempt organization um, use disclaimer language, um, you know, in their personal uh, political activities, so that if they are supporting a political um, candidate, as in their personal, that they say, for instance, you know, my, um, I'm supporting this person in my personal capacity. Um, if you, your name is added to a an endorsement list, and your, um, your profession is added next to it, like, you know, executive director of whatever 501c3 Ask that they put language in that says, um, you know, uh, titles are added for identification purposes only and, and are not endorsements, you know, of those organizations, right? Just making sure that there's a difference and there's a space between one's personal life and the 501c3 that they they work and lead. Um, And then include some disclaimer um, when doing activities or communications involving community candidates. Again, similar, just saying, like, we're providing you with issue information. We're happy to talk with you. This is neither an endorsement, you know, um, this is not an endorsement of of your candidate, but here's some information, right? So I think, you know, just being really clear with folks, that is a really important, um, that can clear up a lot of issues right out of the gate um and then there are a couple um really interesting um resources that i always point people to the irs has actually done some videos where they've gone through this in detail um, in terms of what they expect from 501c3 organizations and so the first link here is uh, political campaigns and charities and basically what irs thinks is okay what is not okay uh, what they're looking for what they um you know what they will audit um, they're pretty good videos. Um, and they're fairly recent. I think they were done in the last couple of years. So I would definitely recommend that if your organization is, you know, doing a lot of ad- advocacy during an election year, thinking about doing lobbying, they do have some, um, other, uh, videos on lobbying as well that you go to this site and just check out some of those videos. And then Council of Nonprofits, I think, is a great organization, especially for those who are representing 501c3 organizations. And they have a really nice write up on what are some of the things that you should be thinking about in terms of, um, you know, risking your tax exempt status and participation um, uh, in engaging in activities during an election year. And so with that, I'm going to stop my share. I am happy to answer any questions. if anybody has any. I went I went really quick. Usually I do that in like an hour and a half and I knew I only had an hour. So I'm sorry for how quickly I was speaking, but I wanted to just kind of get through the slides. And then if people have any specific questions, I'm
0: happy to answer them. Teresa, I have a question sure. I can give everybody a second to think. I'm wondering whether with lobbying, um, it seems like the 501H election is is just money focused. But if you're not in that safe harbor, do you also need to think about um, efforts or activities apart from monetary contributions or staff time? Like if you're a largely volunteer run organization, does what you do matter even if there aren't dollars attached to it? So
1: for the IRS's purposes, not really. I mean, they really, their test is really about your expenditures, the volunteers. I mean, that's why I said, use your volunteers, right? Because you don't actually have to count their time. Um, for other other restrictions on lobbying, like the sunshine laws that I was talking about, that does or can, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, measure time, right? So for instance, this, the state of Massachusetts has a litmus test that basically says a certain amount of hours or a certain amount of t- of money, right? That puts you into when you have to register for lobbying. Um, recently, in the last couple of years, the city of Boston tried to pass a sunshine law about um, lobbying any um, uh, legislator or agency policy maker in the city of Boston. And it was so expansive. There was no, there was no test. <laughs> it was like one conversation that put you into having to register and filing quarterly reports. Um, There was a huge backlash to that because obviously, you know, one call, one conversation, there was no no sort of like limit test of, you know, where it actually kicked in. So they went back to write regulations and those regulations have never been finalized. And so it's on hold right now. So it really depends on the jurisdiction you're in. You know, um, other states have other requirements as well, but you want to kind of pay attention to what those are. But usually there's some threshold that you have to meet before you, you have to register as a lobbyist. That's not always just money. That could be time as well. Any other questions? Okay. There's no other questions. Everybody gets eight minutes back to their to their day.
0: Thank you so much, Teresa. This was really, really helpful and informative. Um, So thank you. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us.
1: I'm happy to do it. Thank you. Thanks.